celebrating uh, changed lives and people that have been made different by the power of God next weekend. And so we're going to have dozens and dozens and dozens of people that are baptized next, Wednesday, uh, next weekend. And we'd love for you to be a part of that. So if you've never been baptized, or maybe you were um, sprinkled as an infant or something like that, and you're like, man, I'm a grown person and I want to make this decision my own, this is just an opportunity for us to publicly celebrate what God is doing in our heart. It's an opportunity for us to tell the world that Jesus is our Savior. And that's what baptisms represent. So if you're interested in being a part of that, please sign up out in the, in the lobby at the Info Center, or you can register on our website at summittogether.com. So let us know about that. also want to let you know there's a table in the lobby for sign-ups. We've got a, a REACH event coming up at the end of April, April the 23rd. Uh, Steph will tell you more about that at the conclusion of the worship experience today. But um, that's an opportunity for you to sign up. We want to bless our community. We want to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the people all around us. And this is one of the ways we do that. So I would love for you to stop by there and find a place to sign up so that you can be a part of, uh, of reaching our community and just being a blessing and, and seeing every life made different in our town. Uh, today, we've got a very special guest with us, Marion Jones. Um, we've been talking about this for a few weeks. Some of you know who she is already. Uh, some of you don't, though. We've got a book that she's written. It's in our bookstore. If you want to find out more about her story, you want a little more detail than we're going to be able to share in 30 or 35 minutes, um, check her book out. You need to stop by the bookstore, pick that up. If you stop by, are there copies still available? I don't know. If, if there's no copies available, we're going to pick up some more. So check back next weekend if, uh, if books aren't available today. But also you can check out her um, her 30 for 30, an East PN documentary uh, by John Singleton. It was done. It's, uh, it's on Netflix. If you have Netflix, you can search Marion Jones and find it there. And you can find out more details, more context about her story. But I'm excited about her sharing today. And the truth is, some of you are here, and you don't even know, really know who she is. So I want to show a quick video that uh, just gives you kind of an overview of her life in four minutes. So take a look at this video, and uh, we'll be back in just a moment. taken a performance enhancing drug and I never will. Her doing what was expected of her, winning, putting it on the line. I want all of you to know that today I pled guilty to two counts of making false statements to federal agents. Jones must surrender herself to authorities by March 11th, although she'll likely turn herself in before that. Because of my actions, I'm retiring from the sport of track and field. Marion Jones was on her way to becoming the greatest track and field athlete, man or woman, ever. Properly. 
and I made a mistake. However, I'm coming back from my mistake, and she don't want them to make the same mistake. No matter the fashion of my hair, my shoes, I will always do just what I choose. Don't expect of me what you would do. We were raised differently. I ain't you. Never in my life did I imagine that I'd be speaking in front of you all. I never imagined that I would have gone to prison. making a bigger difference than when she was running because now she's able to get out and speak to the youth and try to help someone else. She's confronted her past. She's accepted it, learned lessons from it. She is 34 years old. She hasn't played competitive basketball in a dozen years. But I remember when she was in college. I think it's fantastic she needs to do something physical because that's what kind of person she is. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome with me to the summit stage, Marion Jones. Thanks, Marion. Hi, Pastor Mel. Good morning. Good morning. Well, Marion, it's great to have you with us today. Um, feels like we've done this a couple times now. <laughs> we have. Do you just want me to cover it all? I can tell the story now. <laughs> why don't you, you, why don't you interview me and I'll act like uh, Marion. Anyway, um, I appreciate her. She's been such a great sport to, to walk through the story with us and, and share it and um, so I appreciate her transparency and her honesty with us just about kind of where she's at. Um, and so thank you again for being here. I really do appreciate that. Um, you know, a lot of people can look at your story and we see the highlights and the headlines and all those different things. Um, but that doesn't tell the whole story of who you are. You know, even that, that video, we joked about it being a four-minute video that tells your whole life. <laughs> but, um, but the truth is there's a lot of context that we don't see. Uh, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and in, in your home life. What did that look like? Sure. Um, well, I am originally from California. I was born and raised in the Los Angeles area. All right. Only one California person. <laughs> they just waved, though. <laughs> They're polite. They don't disrupt things Woo! by clapping. No, they just. Um, but I, uh, I have one older sibling, one brother. Um, and so my parents uh, were divorced when I was three years old. My mom, great woman, um, she raised my brother and I, and a few years later she remarried, and a great guy, um, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience with him. Um, unfortunately, a few years after my mom and my stepdad were married, he passed away. He had a massive brain stroke, and he passed away, so my mom was forced to, to be mom and dad to my brother and I, and my biological father, he was, he still, he was still living, but he was he chose to be distant, and we had a very 
tough relationship. Um, and so my mom did everything she could with my brother and I, and she instilled you know, good values with us. But it's, it's a challenge you yeah. know, when you are a single parent and you, are, um, you have to travel good distance to work and back home and um yeah it was it's, it was difficult well it's hard to it's hard to be a parent right. it, it, when you've got a partner to work with yeah. it's really hard to be a single right. parent i can't even imagine yeah. and uh, um how did how do you feel like in hindsight looking back now how do you feel like the lack of a, a father in your home um impacted you ultimately what did the, how did that impact your life I think it had a significant impact, and it's not to take away, I, I thought about this, it's not to take away anything um, from what my mother tried to do, you yeah. know, but, but sometimes, you know, it's, as you mentioned, when you have another parent in the home to offset so many things, um, and, and not having um, a relationship with mm -hmm. my father, and not, not even so much that, but not even having the ability to answer questions. Yeah, you didn't even have access. Right, no access. Yeah. And I, ha I had mentioned this, but um, uh, when after I won my medals in Sydney, and we'll get to that, my father passed away mm. um, in 2001. So I never even got so many of the little questions answered. Mm. Um, and so that, that was tough. But um, And so having dealt with all of that, you know, for a lot of young people, their outlet is to turn to something negative. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be gangs or drugs or whatever. Um, fortunately for me, my outlet um, was a positive one, and that was sports. And I gravitated towards it, I, and even more so when I realized that I was really good. I yeah. was um, very athletic. My mom and I saw that there was something different about uh, how I approached sport and competitive activities compared to everyone else and realized that I was just really fast, really gifted. And my mom just really poured everything into developing that because it's what I wanted. Yeah. She was certainly not one of the type of parents that, now you gotta, no. I led, I said, this is what I wanna do. You know, I, I wanna be great, yeah. I wanna be great. And um, so much that at nine, um, I mentioned I'm from Los Angeles. The Olympics, many of you can remember if you are fans of the Olympics, but the Olympics came to Los Angeles in 1984. And that was my first real experience with what it was all about. Mm -hmm. um, had you know, no real idea. And my mom and stepdad took us to the Olympic parade and I saw the athletes. And, and that particular summer I sat, like many, and, and watched. And I knew that's what I wanted immediately. Mm -hmm. I knew that that's what I needed to be doing. Um, and uh, from that day, my dream was to be an Olympic champion, not just go to the Olympics. Like that wasn't enough for me. Yeah. You know, I wasn't carrying anybody's bag. I was, I was going to do it. I was going to be in the spotlight. And that's kind of how it all started. So as a nine-year-old, you decided, hey, uh, I want to, I don't know if you conscientiously said, I want to make uh, the Olympics or, or athletics my profession, but you decided I've got this goal in front of me. But you just started getting involved in all kinds of athletics. You played um, you, you, soccer and, um, yeah. and t-ball and, I mean, Gymnastics, just about anything you could yeah. play, you played. And, and you probably had a pretty high level of success at just about all those, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, it was my joke, and, I, and I've shared it before, was that I have a brother who's five years older than I am. And uh, I knew that there was something that was pretty darn incredible when, you're, when your bro older brother is picking you to be on his neighborhood teams. Yeah. Right? You know, like, 
Yeah. Like pickle. I don't. Is it, they play pickle yeah. anymore? Yeah. I just yeah. love that game. Uh-huh. We had some old tires, and we would put it on each end of the yard, and just back and forth. But we, yeah, when he's starting to pick you, and like not like go away. Yeah. Like I'm the first pick. Like yeah. Yeah, I've never experienced being the first pick before. So <laughs> that'll conclude our interview. Uh, sure, and that's got to be a huge moment for you. So that was kind of the beginning, but I mean, you had a lot, a high level of success in athletics. Um, as you were young, all through high school, um, and, and even, uh, you know, you shared that uh, as a 15-year-old, you were racing against the top, uh, top athletes in the world, and uh, what happened when you were 15? So, it got to a point, even, even prior to turning 15, I was 13, 14, like, competing against kids my age was not a challenge anymore. Mm-hmm. And so we started to enter into elite competitions um, throughout California and the West Coast. Um, so by the time I was 15, I had qualified for the Olympic trials. So you have to have a qualifying time even to just to get into that meet. They don't let... You, I can't just sign no, up for that? No, sorry. Oh, I cannot just okay. sign up for that. Um, and so I qualified and I made the Olympic team mm-hmm. at 15. And it was great experience. It was just another stepping stone to that ultimate mm-hmm. dream, that ultimate goal, um, which is huge. It's just huge. Like I, I'm a believer in goal setting. It's big in our house. Like every year I have my kids. I have three kids now. I have a 12, eight and six year old. And every year, um, those are the kids. Hey Josh, would you go check on that for me? Some <laughs> child is being thrown into the wall or something. Um, but I, I'm just kidding. It's not really happening. <laughs> Just so you know, our kids' church is up there. They're probably bouncing a ball off the wall. Yeah, it's going to be fun. The kids' number that was up there, that's probably... <laughs> that child's like, why won't my mother pick me up? <laughs> Let me out of here. Your children are fine. They're having a great time. Don't worry. Um, where were we? <laughs> um, Olympics? I don't, uh, Pre-Olympics? Yeah, no, I was talking about goals. Right? Goals, yeah. goals, goals. I... I, I um, it's, I, I, it's huge for me, um, and even before I learned really the importance of it, it's like I can remember, like that nine, at nine, writing on my chalkboard, setting your goals, and I don't know, I remember somebody telling me to put it on my mirror, my bathroom mm-hmm. mirror, I don't know if anybody does that, right? But, but keeping yourself accountable. It's one thing to set a goal and just have it up here, yeah. right? But, but nobody checks you on it, mm-hmm. right? So you're easily, like, it, so... To get to my point, every January I have my kids write a, a goal chart, and they write their academic goal for the year and their behavior goal for the year and their whatever three goals. And so do, I have. Do their behavior goals line up with your behavior goals normally? Uh, generally. Oh, okay. Yeah, good. Generally. That's good. Um, but my I have an eight-year-old. He's he's very driven. He's he's the middle child, but he's we still love him. You know, <laughs> we we love him. He's very driven, and his goal was his. He wanted to be a best, better basketball player, and he said he's going to shoot and make 50 free throws and 50 layups every day, right? And, like, that every day. Like, I don't have to tell him, right? And so, actually, um, Kim was telling me about your, your youngest daughter, mm-hmm. daughter and, and she's just very driven, and mm-hmm. um, it's just a good quality to have and to encourage. Yeah. Like, write it down. Like, Emma, put it on your bathroom mirror, your goals, okay? So every morning when you wake up, like, you could see them. Right, and mom can see them, and dad can see them, and they can check you and say, you know, is that what you're doing? Okay, so let's get back to what we were talking about. And so yeah, I made the Olympic team at 15. It was a great experience, but decided I wanted to just wait 
for my shining moment. Mm -hmm. And so I decided a few years later to accept a basketball scholarship to the University of North Carolina where I was going to run track. Um, one, yeah. All right. There's, there's one Carolina are fan you, here. Are you alum or just fans? Yes. Right. You know what you guys were doing last night? Celebrating. Drinking. Apple cider. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. This is the fourth time we've done this. So it's, <laughs> we have derailed. That's okay. So I, I went to Carolina. I, I, wanted, I wanted to make an impact. And my freshman year, we won the national title. Mm -hmm. And everything on the outside was just peachy. It was mm -hmm. just great. I was, I was doing well academically. I was solid on the court. I was running well. But as we all know, when, you, when you're dealing with stuff, like real life stuff, and I was dealing with like my, my childhood stuff and, and biological father and that type of, those type of things. And I had never really addressed it. Like I'm not the type of person to just like, this is, this is what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. And some people can do that. And it's actually pretty good to be able to just share that. Well, I'm not that type of person. And so for years and years, I just kept it bottled up. And so much that by my, t my junior year in college, and I had experienced some injuries, and I couldn't do what I thought um, represented who I was. I played sports, and I had to sit back, and all of that started to come out, and I was depressed. And once again, still didn't deal with it. Yeah. Um, and finished in 1997, graduated, a degree in journalism and communications, and decided I wanted to, to finally pursue this dream. I was going to make this happen. Right around that same time, um, uh, I, I got involved in some relationships that uh, just weren't the best for me and uh, really caused me some problems later on down the line. But after I graduated and I got back into the sport of track and field and success once again came my way very, fairly quickly, um, and I was a world champion in 1998 and 1999, and that was leading up into the 2000 games in Sydney. And I had um, very lofty goals, very, mm -hmm. uh, very much attainable goals. Um, and I declared in 1999 that I, I was going to Sydney and I was going to win five gold medals. And unbeknownst to me, I didn't know it had never been done before. And I said it very casually and, and confidently like I, I normally do. And um, the press and the media kind of took it and ran with it. Yeah. And, and so from that, I became the poster child, like the American poster child of the Olympic Games. Yeah. And so I was all over the news. I was on every magazine cover you can you can name and well, well and really it was it was even transcending the sport of track and field because people outside that weren't even familiar right. with it. They were they were recognizing you. They were seeing you on ads and in, you know, uh, on late night shows and all mm -hmm. kinds of things. because uh, there was on this build up it was just incredible. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge, but uh, um my, my running joke is that I always, as a kid, I, I always knew what I wanted. Mm -hmm. Like I was not that, that, that type of child. I was like, okay, I don't know, maybe I'll be an engineer, maybe, no. I knew it, I knew how to, how to get there, and um, I, I can remember telling my brother that I'm gonna have my name in the paper before he was gonna have his name in the paper. <laughs> and now my running joke is, like. Be careful what you wish for, because now when I see my name in the paper, it's not always like a good thing. Okay? <laughs> yeah. So I, I went to Sydney and I won five medals. I won three gold and I won two bronze. And um, 
life just seemed to be just happening for me. Was, at that point, and again, from the outside looking in, you look at your life and think, oh, it's a charmed life. You're this, the darling of the Olympics. You're, you know, um, you're doing everything right, at least publicly. That was the perception. You were on talk shows and Vogue magazine, all these different covers and all those kind of things. Um, but at that point, did you, did you kind of feel somewhere in your mind like, this is what life is going to be like for me? Or, you know what I mean? Like, at that point, did you kind of feel like, okay, this is what my life is going to look like. I'm always going to have this, or it's always going to look this way. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. I, I think most people think that. Like, mm -hmm. especially, like, it wasn't a one-year thing. Yeah. Like, it's not like uh, it was just one year I had the success and it fell off. No, we're talking, like, like three, four, five, like, like this yeah. is my reality. Um, and I, I started to like it. Like I started mm -hmm. to like, and I, and I never, as a child, like I never like, was one that was an attention seeker. Like my um, activities like brought the attention, mm -hmm. right? But I never like, like, oh, watch me, see me, see me. No, it was never like that for me. But I, I could, during those years, I found myself like liking it mm -hmm. and liking people around me. Who were telling me that I was great mm -hmm. and keeping them around me because I needed that, thought I needed yeah. that, and distancing myself from people like who'd be like, you know, Marion, you're not all that. Right? Right. <laughs> like I had a friend who's like, you're not all that in a bag of chips. Mm -hmm. right? Like I remember when you you were not all that. Yeah. <laughs> and and but it's important. Like it's important to keep people like that in your life, right? And during that time, I didn't, and I distanced myself from people who would keep it straight. And keep it real with me, like my parent, my mom, and my brother, and childhood friends, and I kept this circle around me who would just pat me on my back, yeah. and tell me how great I was. So yeah, that's well, and and it wasn't just that they were telling you what you wanted to hear, but they had self-serving purposes as well because yeah. you were kind of like their gravy train. So sure, and I, you know, as I mentioned, I think just in the last service, I I, I look out for people who look out for me. It's just mm -hmm. a, a quality that I that I have that I'm proud of, mm -hmm. right? You, you know, people that are special to me, I, I make them feel special. And so the people who were in my corner, right, like I looked out for them and they were taken care of. And, and yeah, I didn't, I didn't like see past certain yeah. things. And I ignored a lot of just flags that, that the gut feeling that things weren't right, that I wasn't being told everything that was truthful. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just caught up in this wave so much that after the Olympic Games in 2000, 2000, 2001, a lot of success, 2002, sports person of the year. And we're not just talking like like U.S. females, mm -hmm. right? Like we're talking like the sports person of the year like yeah. in the world just to, to give people who don't understand like a little bit of idea of where I'm coming from. So 2003 came around and um, still a, a lot of just – awards and, and all kinds of things. And during that time, there was a lot of talk in the media about elite athletes and performance-enhancing drugs and, and how they're getting these performance-enhancing drugs and, and all of that. And I was, I was called by federal investigators to, this was in 2003, to come and speak to them right, about any knowledge that I might have mm -hmm. of performance-enhancing drugs and a particular company that was supplying um, supplements and this stuff to athletes. And so when I got the call, I was like, okay, like I contacted my attorneys, let's go and do this. I have nothing to hide. Let's go and just get this done and I get back to my life. Um, so 
We can talk about the Queen for a day letter. I think it's I think it's important. So yeah. prior to traveling to California, that's where the interview was with federal agents. Um, federal agents supplied to my attorneys this document called Queen for a Day. And what this letter is, for those that are not attorneys, you know, it, it, in essence, um, a witness or a person involved in an investigation, they can sign this document saying that if you are 100% honest and truthful with the feds, right, no matter what you share with them, right, you cannot be prosecuted, mm -hmm. right? They, they still do it. Um, and so my attorneys, they warned me, they said, you know, okay, this is what this entails, that if you're not honest, you know, this is what could happen. So I knew that. So I'm, I'm going into this interview. I, I have nothing to be concerned about. I'm going to tell them you know, whatever I know, if anything, and, and sign it. So I signed it. Mm -hmm. And so I went to California, and we started the interview. And, and fairly quickly in the interview, I realized that, like, they thought, like, they were oh, they're targeting me. Yeah. Like, they thought that I knew a lot more and that I wasn't being honest with them. And their questions became harder and mm -hmm. tougher. And... I mean, it's just as you can imagine, there was three agents and there was myself and I had attorney, like we're sitting in a conference room, a big time hotel, and it's just, it's very charged. And so much that they go out in the hallway with my attorneys and they tell them, you know, we don't think she's being upfront. So they come back in and immediately one of the agents reaches in and he pulls out, it reaches into his bag and he pulls out a Ziploc bag, right? And I'm sitting across the table. I didn't know what it was and immediately he, he shook it, threw it across the table, and I immediately recognized that it, I knew what it was and that I had indeed been given it prior to the games, right? And realized that it was what this performance-enhancing drug was that had been in the news. So in that moment, I thought to myself, like, oh, no. Yeah. You know, if I admit to them right, that I know what this was and that I had taken it and whether or not they believed that I, that I even knew beforehand what it was, like everything that I had dreamed of, that dream at nine mm -hmm. of being Olympic champion, like, and all my success would be tainted. Mm -hmm. I could forever be tainted. And nobody would believe what I had to say. I don't know what the future would hold, all of that. So in the span of, I mean, literally, I, I can break it down to 45 seconds. Like I made the decision in my head, right, that I was gonna lie about it, right? And that I was not gonna tell them that I knew what it was for fear that like everything would be turned upside down. And so I told them, no, I don't know what it is. Fairly soon after that, they called the interview, and we went our separate ways. And I, for four years, like I tried to cover this up. And, and what helped was that I never failed a drug test. I distanced myself from the coaches and the people who were in my circle. And I'm still winning races, like mm -hmm. all over the world. And, you know... The problem is, like, every time I was interviewed after every race and people were asking me questions, like, I'm having to, like, build on this lie. Mm -hmm. Like, no, I've never taken anything. I never would, da, 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 right? And I'm having to. And the burden, as we know, when we tell what seems like a little lie, and you have to tell it over and over again, heavier and heavier and yeah. heavier. And a lot of people, they don't have to, f like, face it every day. Like, you tell your little lie, and you don't have somebody asking you a question every day. Right? Like, that was me. Like, Marion, like, you know, you said this, like, are you sure? Like, you're telling us the truth? So this is every race, every interview, every press well, conference. Well, every race, because you understand, like, I'm the elite athlete at every meet, mm -hmm. right? And there's always a question about performance-enhancing drugs in sport, mm -hmm. right? So even if it's not directly to me, 
right? They ask me my opinion on it. They yeah. ask me, like, what do you think the pressures are for athletes? So every single time I'm having to tell it and tell it and tell it. Um, and so it just became heavy. And I'm winning races and everything looks great on the outside and people are paying me a lot of money to endorse their products and, and to project this superwoman image to the world that I have it all together and I don't. Like on the track I do, I'm blowing people away. But uh, when that track meet is over and I have to go to that hotel and I have to look in that mirror, like I have to face the real me when nobody's around, it's not good, not pretty. So, so you're, you're dealing with all this internal stuff, this pressure, this, this personally knowing that you are carrying this burden. Um, and you, in two, you married Oba in 2007, and you, there started to be a shift in how you perceived some of that, that baggage you were carrying. Tell yeah. us about that. You know, when, you, when you start something new and fresh and wonderful like in your life, you want to give your significant other and yourself the best possible chance like to make it work like I'm a competitor like I like I like I want things to work and I'm gonna figure out how to make it work and I wanted um, a long long future like, with him and I knew that like to get a good base like you have to start fresh like there can't be baggage when you start a relationship like you have to get all that stuff out you mm -hmm. know for even to have a fighting chance and so we knew that I, I needed to get rid of this. Mm -hmm. And I knew what I had to do was, was going to cause a lot of pain. Um, and it was going to be hard for him and I. And, yeah, we didn't know what the future held. Um, but in 2007, I, um, well, 2003, I had my, my first son. And for those four years, I mean, I remember teaching and telling him, you know, when you have kids, you, you tell your kids, you know, once you make a poor choice, right, like you have to, you have to face it. And you deal with the consequences, mm -hmm. right? And sometimes consequences, you know, for a young person, they might seem really severe, right? Uh, punish whatever punishment that is. Um, uh, and I'm telling my son this, but I, you know, and I'm done. I'm dealing with that, and I turn around, and I'm not living that, right? Like, like what a hypocrite! Yeah. I'm telling my son, you got to face the consequences, Monty. Right? Got to face it. Right? That's life. Hard. So I, that to me was huge, right? And so we made the decision that I was going to, as some people say, come clean. And in 2007, as you saw in the video, I um, confessed to having lied to federal investigators. And in January of 2008, I was sentenced. And going into the sentencing procedure, my attorneys and I were, were very confident, not just fairly confident, we were very confident that um, the judge was going to see that I would best serve the interests of the public by being um, involved in community service and teaching the young people good decision making and all that. Um, although we knew that the you know the judge could ultimately decide whatever they want, mm -hmm. um, and that prison time was, was definitely a you know, possibility, we were confident that that would not happen. And so, went into sentencing, and two and a half hours later, my reality was that I was sentenced to six months. Um, prison time. I was, I was in shock. I never had um, been to prison, never had known anybody who had gone, um, didn't know what to expect. So uh, a lot of times from the outside looking in, we look at something like prison and we see what it looks like on television or, you know, and, um, and typically a television show, it's over in 30 minutes. And so we, our concept of time and television and 
prison and what it really is like is, is skewed. Um, so when you went to prison, um, how, how much of a reality check was that for you? Was it just a total like punch in the face as far as, well, this is not anything I've ever experienced before? Yeah, like no words even to describe it. Um, I'm, I, I know that I'm eloquent in my delivery, right? And I'm very good at communicating with people. And I have searched high and low for a way to really describe how uh, low it makes you feel. Mm -hmm. um, and walking into FMC Carswell, which is the name of the institution that I was sentenced to, it's in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, walking in and like not walking in anonymous. Mm -hmm. Like most people walk in anonymous. Like you, people don't know what you did, you know, unless you tell them. Like my reality is that my story is on the news in the TV room in the prison. Uh, the helicopter that's flying over, you know, the prison is trying to get the video of me. Um, and so I don't walk in anonymous. Everybody knows my story, yeah. and that makes it even worse. Yeah. Um, but. I, I figure out things, you know, fairly quickly and, and how to cope and, and, you know, try and function and get through the six months as fast as I can. Before going there, my husband and I had, um, like, re really made our foundation in the church and my faith was growing and, and I thought that I was kind of equipped, mm -hmm. right, to take on anything that, even the unknown, and that's what it was for me. Like, there were, you know, my joke is that, you know, there is no how-to guide when going, when surrendering, you know, to prison. <laughs> like, you can't go yeah. to Barnes & Noble and, and pick that up. <laughs> Although I will tell you, um, I'm very resourceful in that prior to um, uh, surrendering, there are these chat rooms that you can go on, right? And, and so I, I created a username and account, like an anonymous, of course. And you can go in, and there are families and people who are in these chat rooms and they, they talk about what it's like. And so for a couple of months, like that was my research. Mm -hmm. Like I'm trying, what can you bring in? What is it really like? And I would ask questions and, they, and there were people, no, nobody knew, yeah. of course. Um, but you still walk in and you don't know what to expect. And so figured it out though. And I, I met some wonderful, wonderful women while I was in there. Um, people like, oh, are you you got friends with people who are in prison or criminals. Murderers. Right? And, like, yeah. Like you could have people living next door to you and you wouldn't know, you know. And, yeah. But a lot of these people are, are good, good people. Like these are women who are moms, right, and daughters and, and sisters who've made poor choices, right? And so, yeah, you can point the finger, you know, and, and a lot of people do. A lot, all of us do that. You point the finger. They have messed up in their life. And this is their consequence. I don't want to hear any, uh, uh, no, but they're real. And they've made a poor choice. A lot of them have made one poor choice, right? And if you're really being honest with yourself and you look in the mirror and you ask yourself, is there anything I've done in my life, right? right? Have I, you know, changed the numbers a little bit on my tax returns? Or, you know, maybe one night just one drink too many and taking a chance. Like if, if you're really honest with yourself and you look at it like that, you say, gosh, you know, it's different. And so, yeah, I, I developed some friendships and some relationships from there. That, and these are women who, like, I learned this, and we'll talk about it a little later, but I learned really what it is to have hope in your life yeah. and something to grasp onto. And there was women that I met in there that had been incarcerated for a decade and, and had a decade more mm -hmm. to go on their sentence, right? 
and I'm a mess because I have six months away from my kids. And these are women who hadn't seen their kids in however long, got no mail, no phone call, but every single day, somehow, they were able to wake up, right? Mm -hmm. And there was something about them. Their energy was good. And, and after a while, when I felt comfortable um, talking with them, I would ask them, like, how, how were you able to do this? Because I am struggling, right? Mm -hmm. And they said, Marion, you know, we do it. We have nothing to, like, physically to grasp. We can't hold our loved one. Yeah. We can't hear a comforting word from them. But we know, like, we hope, like, there's this sense that tomorrow can be better. Yeah. Tomorrow I can feel a little bit better, you know. And, and, yeah, I don't get out of this place for another 10 years, but maybe it'll be nine. Right? Like, last, you know, last week, I know there's, there's different political opinions and stuff, but I saw President Obama um, commuted the sentence of a lot of these people who um, had really harsh sentences for, for smaller crimes. And I know a lot of the women that I met probably um, were impacted by his decision to commute a lot of these sentences. And, and that's the hope that I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Like their sentence was for 21 years, right? And with the commutation, right, they probably are out four years earlier. Yeah. Um, and it was a life-changing experience for me. It was a blessing for me. People are like, really? Prison, Marion? Blessing? Yes. I have no problem saying that, mm -hmm. right? Because sometimes for all of us, we get to our lowest, lowest point, and we don't know how we are going to survive until the next day for various reasons. Probably not similar to mine, mm -hmm. right? But, but everybody is dealing with their own stuff. Yeah. Right? It, 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 whatever it could be, it could be the loss of a job, the breakdown of a marriage, whatever it might be. But you hold on to that sense that tomorrow can be better yeah. if you open your heart. And that's, that's how it was for me. So my first few months at Carswell, they were okay. And then there was a situation while I was there. I was attacked. I had to defend myself. And so the consequence of me defending myself was 49 days in solitary confinement. Right? And... You know, if, if it was low before, right, <laughs> walking into prison, like, the lowest of lows was, was 23 out of 24 hours a day in a cell by yourself, and sometimes all day if the particular guard didn't want to go and face the hour outside of the Texas heat, right? So some days, 24 hours a day in yourself, um, unable to talk, pick up the phone, no visits, nothing. Um, no watch. Like, to me, that was a big thing. Mm -hmm. Like, not, they took my watch. Like, what, when I was on, in the prison camp, you know, you get a watch, you know, you're able to walk and do function. But when you're in solitary, they take your watch. It's, it's a type of mind game, so you don't know the time. And you can see kind of when the sun comes up and when it goes down, but you have no concept. Mm -hmm. um, and the lowest of the lows. I can't describe it. But in that time... It's when my heart started to open up to the Lord, and, and, and I will share. I mean, my yeah, I was going to ask. Um, you, you had shared with us before there were some specific things that happened that kind of started revealing God to you more. Yeah. You know, I, I mentioned before I thought that I was equipped right, to, take, to take this on. Well, <laughs> I wasn't. You know, I wasn't. Um, and I needed, I needed something to grasp onto, and God knew it. God was there with me, and he knew that, that I, was, I was at that, mo at that low point. And um, I realized by receiving mail, like I would receive hundreds and thousands of letters, and I could, I could only imagine. So, so the prison guards has, have to read everybody's mail, 
right? And when you're in the prison camp, they just skim through it. But when you're in solitary, they literally have to read through everything to see what type of information you're getting. They read what letters you send out to make sure you're not sending any type of crazy information. And so I can imagine, like, while I was there, maybe that's why they called me the unique inmates. Mm -hmm. But, like, I, I would guess that I had a dedicated prison guard just to read my the amount of mail that I received. Um, and I would receive letters from, from people, um, from women churches all around the world and around the country telling me that they were praying for me, that they were loving me. And like, I didn't know them. Like they didn't know me. They had never run a hundred meter race. They could mm -hmm. care less about track and field, probably about sport, but somewhere along the long had heard my story and it touched them in yeah. some way. And they would take up collections in their church, right. To put on my book. So, you know, for people that don't know prison lingo, when, when somebody says money on your books in prison, they don't have, they don't deal in currency. They have what's called an account. Everybody has an account. And, and when you need to visit the commissary, so the commissary is like a, a little store where you get your essentials, toiletry items. You take money out of your um, commissary account. Well, a lot of the women there, they had no friends or family to put money on their account. I fortunately, of course, did. And every month I, you know, I asked my husband, did you put the money on the account? And he would tell me like, he didn't need to. Like there was already money on the account, and I realized that like these people who were praying for me had taken up these collections and were just blessing me yeah. by filling my account, and 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 so slowly I my it be, my heart became softened, and I and I started to realize oh, this you know these are good people, but this is God like showing me like His love yeah. for me, and I'm not I'm not able to do anything like I'm not able to run a race. Who I thought I was, I was no more. But he was still loving on me. So I had, didn't, it wasn't because I was Marion Jones. It was because I was his daughter. Yeah. Right? And that's what he does. Right? He loves on us. And he, he loves on us even harder when we're in those dark, dark moments. And it allowed me to, to start to self-reflect, which was important. Um, I had been taken out, I like to say, in this wave of success. Right? And... Without that moment of being slowed down, slowed down it for me meant prison, mm -hmm. solitary. And without that self-reflection on who I was, why I had made certain choices, but more important, like, like going forward, like who are you going to be, Marion? Are you going to allow like society to consume you? Like, are you going to go back out there and be Marion Jones, strong, showing the world strong, confident, got it all together, right? Or are you going to like, like be real? I can show people that, like, you have weaknesses, that you have pain that you deal with, and this is how you got through it. Um, and so, yeah, we, I, I, it, it wasn't like, yes, that's what I'm going to do. Because <laughs> like, I don't want to yeah. sit up here and, and people to think, like, it was that one moment, oh, that's what I'm going to do. There were certain, lots of uncertainty still, yeah. right? Like, and there were days that I said, oh, I don't know if I could do this. I don't know if every day I want to be able to have to face this over and over again. Like, who does that? Who has to deal with every time you travel anywhere, right, to face your reality of making the biggest mistake of your life, right? Like, nobody wishes that for their kid, mm -hmm. right? You want your kids to be successful. Like, you, you're bringing them up. You want them to achieve success, whatever it is. Like, my reality is that I, I, I step out there in faith, and it's hard for me. But in a way, like, it is kind of a success because I know that he's using me like, for his glory, 
Again, and when you see one person hear the story, and not everybody in here, this story is going to touch their life. I get that. I understand that. But there might be one person in here when somebody turns on that Netflix and they sit down for 90 minutes or however long and they watch the story and they take out of that story the idea that we all make mistakes, right? some bigger, some smaller, right? But that life doesn't end there. Mm-hmm. Like if they get that from there, then to me, it's all worth it. Yeah. Was it hard? Sure. Were there a lot of bumps? Sure. Do I still deal with uh, pain? and heartache and dealing with having to confront this every day? Do I still deal with the idea of having a hard time still even like forgiving myself? Like even though I know he has forgiven me, like we're human, Mm -hmm. um, but I know that what I'm doing now is really for his glory. Like like, that's really what it is. Yeah. And and, uh, it's a thousand times more fulfilling than winning a race. I love that, like I love that exhilaration, knowing that I'm the best at that moment in running from here to there. It's a great feeling, but like the feeling, the enormous, overwhelming feeling, knowing that people's lives could possibly be changed in a positive way from hearing my story is so much greater yeah. uh, than anything I could have yeah. ever, ever dreamed of. And I dreamt of being an Olympic champion, but this... Um, story that had been written even before I knew it was written right, mm-hmm. is so much um, bigger than even jotting that down on my chalkboard. Now, we're running out of time, but I, I want to hit real quickly the, the, the last portion. So you, you get out of, of your, uh, you get out of prison. You uh, are attempting to resume normal life. You and Oba are expecting your, your third child, your little girl, um, and uh, you're, you're seven months pregnant, and you get a text message one day. <laughs> Tell us about that. Yeah, so when I, when I was released, um, there was a lot of uncertainty about my future. What I was going to do, I thought that my sporting career was done, um, but uh, I wanted to share my testimony, but we knew that that would be a challenge. You know, I, people, a lot of people would not want to hear what I had to say anymore. Like I had burnt that bridge, mm-hmm. and that's hard to rebuild that. And um, I knew that I wouldn't get phone calls back. And so we were praying about it, like, God, where do you want, where do you want me to be? And so, yes, at seven months pregnant, I um, received a text from a gentleman whom I consider my family, is a mentor, close friend. And the text was, Marion, would you ever be interested in, in playing professional basketball? And uh, this was kind of funny, ran, totally random. Seven months pregnant, hadn't played basketball um, at a high level in you know, 11, 12 years, right? And, and lastly, I was a convicted felon, right? Like, just a little bit of baggage, like, <laughs> like come on. So my response to him was LOL, like, like, okay, like, stop messing around with me. And then, no, his response back was he had been at some convention, and there were some coaches in the league that had just – like, throwing my name out, like, wonder what she's doing. I wonder if she'd be interested in ever trying this. And so my husband and I, we thought about it, and we said, wow, you know, this, this could be interesting, mm-hmm. you know. Like, maybe we've been asking for a sign from God. Like, where do you want us? Maybe this is the sign. Um, it, would, it would satisfy a lot of things. It would satisfy my desire to play sports. I'm very competitive and, and to play Professional basketball at the highest level would, would satisfy that. I was searching to, for um, ways to 
describe to my kids one day this journey of mine and, and, and try and be like a living example to them that once you make a poor choice, like you don't just give up. Like you keep at it and they would be able to see me. So we decided we were going to take it on. We, didn't, we had no guarantees that I was going to make a team. We had no guarantees that I would even get a phone call mm -hmm. from, from one of the coaches interested. But we decided we were going to step out in faith, right? And we were going to attempt this. So a month after my daughter was born, I started training. I started practicing um, with the hopes that we just get a phone call. Like I, I was confident that if I just get a workout with a coach, like they were going to see. Like mm -hmm. that's, how I, that's how I think. I just... Just, just get me in front of somebody. Mm -hmm. And I got a few months after starting back, I got a phone call um, from one of the top coaches in, in the sport of basketball. Nolan Richardson asked me, had heard something about Marion Jones playing basketball. He had been hired by a team in Tulsa, which is a new WNBA team, and he was trying to get his team together and wanted me to work out for him. So I said yes. So I flew to Tulsa. I worked out for him, and I was signed to a WNBA contract. And, you know, this was all in the span of, like, two and a half years. Like, yeah, about two and a half years from me being in solitary, right, to me getting this call and now getting this opportunity to play and to share this testimony now the way I was seeing it on a big stage. Because mm -hmm. right? people are going to put that mic in my face. They're going to want to hear what I have to say. And, yeah, I'm playing professional basketball, but you want to know what? This is, this is how I got here. Yeah. Like, you can't, you can't rip the mic away, like, in mid-interview. Mm -hmm. like it's not professional to do that. Right? You don't say, I'm playing professional basketball. No. Like, I have the mic. And yeah. so you can delete that part of the recording, right? Or you can play it. And so I made the team. It was, it was an interesting experience for me. I am very competitive. I've always been the best of the best. And that's not me sitting up here saying, hey, I'm the best mm -hmm. of the best. That's the reality. It's been documented. You can, do, you can do your research, right? Like, so that was what I was used to. I'm used to being number one, crossing the finish line first, being on the top team, winning the national championship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But my experience in Tulsa was not that. My experience in Tulsa was that I rode the bench, okay, and that I was good enough to make the league, right? But because so much time had transpired, because the game had been so much different, right, I was a step behind, right? So I rode the bench. And the humbling part of it all was that I'm riding the bench normally, like, you don't normally see the people who ride the bench, right? You, like, you see LeBron, like, you see Stephen Curry. Like, those are the people the camera's on, right? No, the camera was on me, on the bench. Well, you were the most famous person on the team. Right, right? Yeah. And so, so the experience to me is humbling, but I, I decided, you know what? I'm going to take it. The camera's on me. You want to know what I have to say? Okay. This is, are, are you ready for what mm -hmm. I have to say? This is what I have to say. And that gave me the platform to start, to start this journey. Yeah. Um, and so I played two seasons, and uh, I'm glad I did. But it, it, it's, it, it wasn't me. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, I trained, and I worked hard, but nobody put it in the coach's heart to call me. Right? Like, nobody put it in these reporters' heart to, like, put that mic in front of my face. And that's how the phone calls. So that's, that's God. Mm -hmm. like, that wasn't me. Yeah. Right? And in the span of two and a half, three years, like we go back to this idea of hope. I know, I, I know we're, we're, we're tight on time, but we go back to this idea of hope, right? Like things can be better. Like I didn't know how they were going to get better. Yeah. But they did, and they slowly started to turn. And it's still, like it's still turning, and, and people's hearts are opening to, up to the story, and they're softening. And it takes time. Like it, I know I let a lot of people down. 
And, and I know it's going to take time. And, but people are slowly starting to hear the story. And like, no, yeah, she messed up. Like, we all mess up. Yeah. Like, what do you do after that? What are you doing for somebody else up, somebody else after you mess up? Yeah. Right? And so that's, that's what I share with people. Like, that's the message. I, if there's anything you guys get from this message, right, it's that life doesn't end when hard times come your way. Whether you are the cause of the hard times, uh -huh. and sometimes that's the case, or somebody else's, life doesn't have to end for you. Tomorrow can get better. You open up your heart and you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and you believe that he can turn things around, uh -huh. right? And it can happen. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Marion, I, I just want you to know I appreciate you sharing your heart with us and just sharing your story with us. And, um, and just that, that story of hope in Christ, um, I think it resonates with people because, you know, we said this before, but there's a lot of people in the room that can't relate to the WNBA or the Olympics or even prison, but they can relate to hurt and yeah. disappointment and loss and pain. Yeah. And so thank you for sharing your hope and thank you for sharing uh, your story with us today. Uh, Marion has got to get away. She's got a flight to catch here shortly. And so um, if you would, she's going she's gonna to step out. But as she does, would, can we give her a round of applause and just tell her thank you? So thank, thank you, Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Pastor. Appreciate you. it. Thank you all. I, I just appreciate her transparency and her honesty. And, you know, one of the things I love about Marion's story, she was re relating uh, or relaying it to us about her time in prison. And, again, if you want more context about any of her story, I would really encourage you. Check out the 30 for 30. on ESP, uh, It's ESPN's 30 for 30. It's on uh, Netflix. <clears throat> if you just search Marion Jones, you'll find it. It's about an hour long, but it gives more details, more context. And then also her book goes into a lot of detail about her time in, in prison and what that looked like and some of the things she dealt with. But one of the things she talks about is that at her lowest point, she began getting mail from people. And she began being encouraged by people. And it wasn't because she was at the top of her game. It was because God was using these people to encourage her at her worst. And I just felt like that's an incredible picture of our God and what he does. Uh, and it reminds me of my, one of my favorite passages of scriptures, Romans 5.8. It says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I love that because it doesn't say when you're at your best or when you cleaned yourself up and when you got your act together, when everything began to come together in your life, Christ died for you. What it says is when you were broken down and at your worst and you were depressed and defeated and you felt like you had no hope and you felt like you had no future, God looked at you and said, you are worth paying the price for. You are valuable. You are precious. And he paid a high price for you by sending his son. That's when he did that. When you were at your very worst, when you had blown it the most, that's when God said, I love you. You are valuable. You are precious to me. And I think Marion's story is such a great reminder of where our hope comes from. It doesn't come from our circumstances. It doesn't come from our job. It doesn't come from our, our state in life because all those things can slip away. But the thing that doesn't change is our walk with Christ. Because when we are with Christ, he's the same yesterday and today and forever. And he's drawing us and wooing us and we can know him and know him intimately. And he doesn't magically make everything better in our lives. But I will tell you, as we're walking through the storms, we know we have someone with us. We're not alone. If you would, bow your head and close your eyes.
today some of you are here and maybe you're like Mary and maybe you relate to her story a little bit because maybe you're that person that you feel hopeless and desperate. Maybe you feel like your life has no value. Maybe you feel like your, your dreams have been lost. Maybe you feel like you've hit rock bottom. And I want you to know there's an answer for that today and it's Jesus. That's not just some cliche or something that I throw out as a pastor, it's truth. So maybe you're here today and you look like you've got all your stuff together, but you know, just like Marion did, behind the scenes, your world was kind of a mess. And you wanna make a change. You wanna make Jesus Lord of your life today. Now this is what's gonna happen. Uh, I'm not gonna embarrass you. I'm not gonna make you come forward. I just wanna pray with you right where you're at. And so if you're here today and you say to me, Mel, I wanna make Jesus Lord of my life and I wanna start that journey today. If that's you, would you raise your hand real high where I can just pray for you? And I'm not gonna bring you forward. I just wanna pray with you where you're at. Thank you, man. Thank you, over here. You can put your hand down. Awesome. Who else says that to me? Pray for me. Thank you, over here on my right. I appreciate it, man. Thanks, guys. Over here, a couple of hands on my right. Praise God. Anybody else would join these and say, pray for me. I want to make Jesus Lord of my life. I want to start the journey today. Thank you, man. Praise God. Thank you, up in the balcony. Praise the Lord. Anyone else, real quickly, you say, that's me. Pray for me. All right, this is what I'd like to do. I want every person in this place to repeat a really simple prayer after me. Whether you raised your hand or not, I want you to say this prayer out loud. Repeat it after me. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me when I was at my worst. Thank you for paying the price for my sin on the cross. I'm alive today because of what you did. I am a new creation. The old is gone and I am new in you. Take my life, my strengths, and my weaknesses, and use it all for your glory. I am yours. Thank you that you are mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, come on, let's celebrate together this morning. Thank you, Lord.